Hi, this is the Cancer Liberation Project podcast. If you've been touched by cancer and have some fear around remaining healthy, you are in the right place. As a 20-year-plus cancer survivor, Haley knows how unsettling it can be to not only hear the words, you have cancer, but also the uncertainty and fear that comes when you have been declared cancer-free. The Cancer Liberation Project was born out of Haley's desire to make cancer less scary for people, to give people hope that they can not only heal from cancer, but live their best, most vibrant life after cancer. Get ready to be inspired with your host, Haley Dubin. Hi, and welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. Today, I sit down with Maggie Jones. Maggie's life changed when the month she turned 40, she was diagnosed with terminal cancer and received a prognosis of less than a year. She's been cancer-free for three years now and has dedicated her life to sharing the evidence-based treatments that so dramatically improved her survival and quality of life. Over the course of her healing, Maggie was fortunate to establish friendships with the scientists and practitioners changing the cancer paradigm and has become a prominent voice in the metabolic cancer treatment community. Maggie and her filmmaker husband are the force behind an award-winning docuseries featuring some of the leading scientists and practitioners on the metabolic theory of cancer and associated therapies. See Cancer Revolution during the world premiere in September. I look forward to sharing my conversation with Maggie, but before I do, just a couple things to mention. First, a reminder to head over to my website at revivewellness.com to get your free seven top tips to keep cancer away and feel confident in your body again. That's R-E-V-I-V-E wellness.com. And second, I want to take a moment to thank the Carl Felt Center, who makes the show possible. Hi, Maggie. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. Hi, Haley. I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure. And really, I just want you to start off telling your story because it is amazing. And just like when you were diagnosed and how you found it and all that. Wow, long story. <laughs> you keep me on track. But I guess my well, my diagnosis began in 2018. And my husband, Brad, and I had just moved from our home in Los Angeles to Hong Kong. And no, we'd never been to Hong Kong before. We'd never been to Asia before. But we are looking for this new adventure. It was one week before my 40th birthday that we moved. And it was the same month that I was diagnosed with the terminal stage four lung cancer. Uh, It was thanks to my husband that I was finally diagnosed. And I want to be clear, I had been experiencing symptoms for years. It had been one year previously in 2017 that I had this horrible cough, like nothing I'd ever had. And I went to urgent care about it. And I actually asked for a chest x-ray and the gal kind of sneered at me (laughs) and gave me some pills that suppressed the cough, which were great. Um, but I only had that cough one other time in my life. And that was when I was diagnosed with the lung cancer, but that wasn't how I was diagnosed because that wasn't my only symptom. I also had these giant tumors bulging out of my neck. And I noticed before the move to Hong Kong, 
that even if I lifted my hands to like shower and wash my hair, I, I would feel the pressure, but I was in too much of a rush. I was too busy to deal with it. I thought I was just getting fat and let it go, ignored it. And it wasn't until we were in Hong Kong that I happened to mention to my husband that I couldn't see out of my right eye for several weeks that he was finally like, Maggie, you need to get that checked out. And actually, when I told him about it, he insisted that I go that weekend. So there was nobody open on a Saturday. We spent all day looking for an ophthalmologist who was open on a Sunday. And then, goodness, I found the greatest ophthalmologist or a good ophthalmologist in the best hospital in Hong Kong that was open on a Sunday. Went in in the morning. He took one look in my eye. He was like, we're ordering an MRI. And then I sat and I sat. I got the MRI in the evening and they told me it was an emergency. I needed to come back the next day to get results. And I was a little surprised, an ophthalmological emergency, <laughs> but it sounded like a great excuse to miss work, right? Got to go get the results of my MRI. So I went in and once again, they left me waiting all day. And I realized now it's because the ophthalmologist, of course, didn't want to start his day by telling me that my eye problem was going to kill me. <laughs> but in the MRI, they had discovered the tumors in my right uh, retina, but also tumors in my brain. And they knew that that was most likely secondary to my primary cancer, which when they heard about my cough and some of the other symptoms, they suspected was lung cancer. And that was confirmed with a, well, first a at CT scan a little, a couple days later, and then with a biopsy to one of the tumors in my neck uh, about a week later. So it all went really fast. But for me at the time, it just was not fast enough. Like once I found out that I had cancer inside of me, all I could think was just get it out, get it out. And making these bargains, like, well, maybe it's just my eye. I have two of them, cut one out. <laughs> or it's my brain. I don't do much with that anyway, <laughs> get it out. But in the long run, it actually was a very good thing that my cancer had spread so dramatically um, throughout my chest, my abdomen, my neck. I mean, bulging tumors, you could see there was no possibility to uh, operate inoperable cancer and unsurvivable cancer. Uh, and that's when I started to decide what I wanted was to be a good patient, to die well for my husband, for my doctors. And that lasted a couple more days. <laughs> and luckily, it was the weekend after my diagnosis, um, really fewer than five days from when I went to that ophthalmologist. Brad took me away to a little overnight uh, beach retreat in Hong Kong. And I started reading my cancer books about people who had survived. And then I realized that, hey, if anybody has survived this, I can drive this. And I know I spread my story out there far and wide, but I'm not the only one. And Haley, your story is so amazing, but you know, you're not the only one. We are everywhere. There's so many of this. Exactly. And that that's all I wanted at that point. So I, I continued my cancer journey. I learned all these healing symptoms or uh, therapies. And it was one year later, again, September 2019, this time that my, I went in for my quarterly scan and I was cancer free and my doctor just could not believe it. I was supposed to be dead by then. Um, everybody was thrilled. They asked for quick pictures. They could hang up on the wall to like let the staff at the hospital know it was possible. But the conventional treatments I had done, which are 
targeted chemotherapy and brain radiation for the four tumors in my head did have their own impact. And right now, it's almost five years later, what I struggle with is brain radiation necrosis because all four of those tumors, when they were treated with the radiation, they eventually became necrotic. And that became a source of major frustration for me that my doctors refused to believe it at the time. And partly, it's not their fault, of course, nobody lives long enough at the time for uh, brain radiation to become necrotic. And they insisted it wasn't that, it was another brain tumor, go back in for more radiation. And thank goodness this time I did not, I, I chose to go my own path. And I was sure that it wasn't another brain tumor, it was necrosis. And it really took three years before my doctors finally said like, yeah, you're right. There's absolutely nothing in there. So I, I do have aphasia, which at points during this call, you'll probably hear I struggle to speak and find words. I have periodic seizures. I have other neurological disorders, but healing from cancer has taught me that I can heal from those too. That is just incredible, incredible. And you know, so right away you were looking at complementary therapies then, right? I mean, you didn't just exactly. say, I'm going to do conventional. There's other things I can do. I'm so fortunate that I was actually raised by a mother who was very much into traditional Chinese medicine and Ayurveda. And really at the time in my childhood, I thought she was crazy. And it was complicated by the fact that she actually was cancer. She was schizophrenic, we found out later on. But so I ended up throwing out everything that she believed in uh, when I was in my adolescence. And I went very much allopathic medicine, only what has been studied, what I can prove. And if it hadn't been for terminal cancer, I would never have gone back. But I was that desperate that I started to revisit some of what I learned in my childhood and been like, I'm just going to try everything. And I was so lucky to be living in Hong Kong at the time where traditional Chinese medicine is just medicine. And even though I went to a very Western hospital, my insurance and the uh, public health would still cover things like acupuncture and things like that. And I strongly started to think that, man, we have amazing medicine in the West, allopathic, evidence-based for about the last hundred years. But in some of these Eastern traditions, they've been using these therapies for millennia, you know, 3000 years. And who am I to say that what my people have discovered in <laughs> very recent history is superior to they be used complementary, just like you say, they're both very important ways of treating disease. Yeah. So what are some of the things that you did? I mean, I know the metabolic approach was something big for you. If you can talk a little bit about what you did. That'd be great. I don't know if I can talk a little bit, but I can talk forever. <laughs> <laughs> I was, well, the first thing that I read was about fasting. And this is something that my mother had also taught me about as a child and I rebelled against, but I tried it. My, that first weekend that Brad took me away to the Gold Coast, I had my first 24 hour fast and it felt so huge at the time. Some of the problems that I knew were probably contributing to my cancer. It was lung cancer. I was a non-smoker, but I drank a lot. And I drank a lot because I had a very stressful job and life. And I realized that I need to, well, I stopped drinking completely. <laughs> Thank God I wasn't an alcoholic because I wasn't quite sure, <laughs> but it wasn't a problem. And I knew I had to de-stress. 
So anyway, that first fast was my way of resetting my relationship with food, with alcohol. And I promised myself that I wouldn't start eating again until everything I ate was something that was actively healing for my body versus alcohol, which I know was inflammatory and definitely maybe made me think I felt good, but did not help my body. I was going to focus on plant medicine, um, you know, just the healing foods that my body was crying out for. Uh, so I continued with first that fasting and then the healing foods. And then I went on to stress reduction and I was actually taking anti-anxiety medication at the time. And my aunt, Colleagues forgot to tell me that I wasn't supposed to take anti-anxiety medication with, with my chemo, but luckily I looked it up somewhere. I realized, oh, I had to stop this. And what a time to stop your anxiety medication, right? <laughs> You're just That's for sure. It's you're so anxiety ridden. Yes. So I found a mindfulness-based stress reduction. And it was very well researched. I saw some evidence-based information. So it appealed to me at the time. But it also called back to my childhood where I was raised in meditation and yoga and kind of bringing me back 35, 25, 35 years back to my childhood where I started trying to meditate. I would never have been able to do it if Brad hadn't joined me because it's, it's really hard to find that time. I was still working at a stressful job. I was so so fortunate that in the same building as my office, they opened up a yoga and healing arts practice. And I was able to get in with a good deal. And that began my journey with yoga and mindfulness. And that has completely changed my life. And when I look back these five years, it's it's completely different. Old Maggie did die because I'm not the same person that I was anywhere. And I'm not sad about that. I mean, I loved old Maggie too. We had a a whole lot of fun, <laughs> but I, I have a whole lot of fun this way. And I would never have had a chance to live this life and really experience my body and life if I wasn't jolted awake by this diagnosis. That makes sense. Mm, it makes <laughs> so much sense because I feel a hundred percent the same way. I mean, just everything changed, everything changed. And I think that's what cancer does. You you look at your life in a whole new way and and what can I do to change my life because something wasn't working. And it, it's so interesting that you brought up stress because I was going to ask you that. Were you very stressed out before you were ever diagnosed? Um, because yeah, it's, you know, it's not, it doesn't cause cancer, but it, it, it suppresses our immune system and and it's not helping <laughs> it's not helping at all and i was completely stressed out so i i i understand in our society especially i think as women it's very hard not to be balancing your family and your career and just life in our society <laughs> so true so yeah learning to face my stress i still have a problem i've realized I wasn't an alcoholic. I'm a workaholic. <laughs> Even when I, I finally got my no evidence of disease diagnosis, but my necrosis was coming in. And that's when I realized I needed to leave my job and focus on my healing. And somehow, you know, four years since then, I found a way to make myself a new job, <laughs> making that very successful. So I, I'm still working on it. But having the tools that I have at the mindfulness, meditation, yoga, exercise has made an incalculable difference 
Oh, that's so great. And, you know, if you could go into the metabolic theory of cancer, because I know a lot of listeners don't know what that is. Yes. I don't explain it so well with my necrosis, but to put it in a nutshell, we are mostly raised in school to believe that cancer is a genetic disease that is in your genes, that you're hopeless, that if it's in your genes, you're going to get it. That's a theory that was developed very recently. Uh, Over 100 years ago, one of the leading theories was that cancer is caused by your uh, mitochondria inside your cells and that the damage to your mitochondria can cause damage to your DNA and then cause this whole, you know, sweeping thing of cancer. And if you think about it, how many cancers are there? There are so many. And are we going to say that there's, you know, one root cause of all those cancers? It's not going to be a genetic mutation because we've sequenced, I think it's 10,000 tumors with the Cancer uh, Genome Apolis Project. And there are so many different stupid aphasia <laughs> mutations within this DNA, within each tumor, even the same tumor can have two different mutations. People, healthy cells can have the same mutations and they don't show cancer. So ultimately it's becoming more and more obvious that the cause of cancer is not inevitable. It's something that do with your mitochondria. And we now have more technology to show this than we had a hundred years ago through electron microscopy and many other things that we show in the this docuseries. And then some of those can make epigenetic changes and epigenetic changes are a way of saying, yes, you have your DNA, but how it's expressed can be very different based on your lifestyle and other factors. And to me, this is so powerful to say that it's not built into your genes. This is not a destiny. And even if you have cancer, it's not a destiny because epigenetic changes can be made at all times and they are completely within your control. Um, The same way how you treat your mitochondria can be within your control. And it comes down to just these lifestyle therapies that, you know, I personally prefer to use with conventional treatments. Most of the evidence is about using them with conventional treatments, but I've talked to many survivors who even use them without and seen amazing results. And when I talk about them as therapies, the results that have been studied are, yes, they can improve survival, uh, mostly by increasing the efficacy of TKIs, tryptophan kinase inhibitors, and other chemo, and especially radiation. They reduce the side effects of these traditional treatments, uh, chemo and radiation, and they'll just improve your quality of life. Um, you feel better. <laughs> and they can mean things like eating a ketogenic diet like I did. There are off-label drugs that can help with this. Fasting is just a huge one that I rely on. I couldn't live without it. Things like exercise, stress reduction, like yoga and meditation. Your lifestyle <laughs> is what makes it Yes. The tumor is only a symptom of cancer, not the cause. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Carlfeld. I'm the owner of the Carlfeld Center in Meridian, Idaho. We specialize in cutting-edge integrative oncology care, addressing the cause and not just the symptom of cancer. There are 11 factors you need to address when diagnosed with cancer. To learn more of what they are, get my free ebook when you visit thecarlfeldcenter.com. Along with the ebook, I will email you a free webinar series 
where world-renowned specialists will tell you what you need to do to address these 11 factors. You'll hear from experts like Jane McLellan, Dr. Paul Anderson, Dr. Neil McKinney, Dr. William Lee, Dr. Nasha Winters, and Dr. Isaac Elias. Don't miss out on this life-saving information. I also offer a free 15-minute cancer consult where we can go over where you are at in your cancer journey and how the cutting-edge therapies we offer can benefit you. Give the Carful Center call at 208-338-8902 or visit our website at thecarfulcenter.com. I wanted to ask you about fasting because I know, you know, I have some clients that are going through chemotherapy and their doctors, you know, oh, don't fast. That is not good. You don't want to lose weight. And so it's very hard to convince them of that. And also, you know, it's a little easier to say maybe the day of to fast, but the day before, the day after, I mean, they think, oh, there's no way I can do that. But what do you, suggest and what did you do? So the research that I read from Dr. Walter Longo at USC has shown, at least in mice very profoundly, fasting the equivalent of three days before uh, a chemo infusion or radiation and maybe a day afterwards are chef's kiss <laughs> for the efficacy of your treatment. And it's possible to use fewer you know, not the the maximum dose. You can get results with a smaller, more survivable dose of both these treatments. For me personally, the difference was night and day. I've had two rounds of stereotactic radiosurgery, both on two brain tumors, both at the same hospital about six months apart. The first round that I had, I went in, I took a taxi. I was, I was so sick, took a taxi home and stayed three weeks on the couch, just vomiting, sweating, couldn't eat anything. It was, it was hell. I thought, well, this is candor. It's everything you hear about. I'm dying. The second time. So that was last November, 2018 in April, 2019, went in again, same hospital. I had my fun little radiation and I walked home from the hospital because I felt great. Uh, that was on a Friday, and I was back at work that Monday because I felt great. There was nothing. And the only difference was that I fasted three days before that procedure and the next day afterwards. And so that's what convinced me. And now, you know, I had other reasons for doing it. I My focus was a lot on my glucose ketone index, which is part of the metabolic suite of therapies, making sure that I don't have some glucose in my blood to feed the cancer because that's really what cancer wants to eat. Um, and instead, I have lots of ketones, which is a great way to feed your healthy mitochondria, something that cancer, for the most part, can't utilize. And so I was focusing on that and fasting is like the best way to get the optimal GKI, it's called. And so I started fasting every Monday, still do, except yesterday, I wasn't that good. <laughs> But my husband does it with me. So we get about 44 hours between Sunday evening to Tuesday dinner. And then at the time of my healing, I was OMAD, one meal a day for the rest of the weekdays. And on Saturday and Sunday, I had two meals <laughs> to celebrate. And then about once a month, I do a three-day fast. And soon, once or twice a year, I did you know six to 10 days. 
I still, these days, I keep the one, you know, I don't eat on Mondays. I still do at least three to five every month, but I have found for extended fasts, you know, five to six days is plenty for me. I've gone up to five and I don't, or sorry, up to 10. And I don't feel like I get that much more healing. It's different for everybody. So you drink water, tea, coffee, that kind of stuff. Exactly. And electrolytes. And my gosh, if you're having troubles uh, fasting, like water fasting, electrolytes is what's missing, the salt, potassium, magnesium. And a lot of what will affect your success with fasting is the diet before. So if you're used to a lot of processed foods, sugar, your body's really going to crave that. And it's going to be very, very hard. I mean, and there are other things that can affect it. The medication that you're on is really hard to fast with steroids, which make you crave food. So it's not about forcing yourself to do it one way or another. Just do what works for you. And a lot of experts like Dr. Jason Fung, who's also in the series, totally fine with having some bone broth while you're fasting, if that makes you feel better. And the way that I fast, it's trying to achieve autophagy or this good cell death to get rid of the old cells and let your body generate new ones. There are other reasons to fast for like weight loss or other chronic diseases. So when you're doing your research and looking into what's right for you, just keep that in mind because you, like you said, Haley, not everybody wants to lose weight while they're uh, in the treatment and it can be really terrifying. The most common question that I get is how do I not lose weight on this way of eating, fasting and keto. And, and it's very much possible. <laughs> it's very possible for me. Nuts and cheese are the way to do it. But at the same time, look and say, are you really, are you really underweight? Because about 2% of Americans are underweight. And as scary as it can be when you're losing that weight and you're sick and you have cancer, it just may be your body becoming more healthy. I lost about 50 pounds my first three months since I was diagnosed, but it was that that I needed to lose to get healthy. Yeah, that's so helpful because I know people do get so worried about that, and especially because their oncologists are saying, do not lose weight, eat anything you want, gain weight. I'm going to interrupt. The reason they say that is uh, cachexia. This is the wasting that causes death for most cancer patients. But that is not the same weight loss that you get from fasting. Um, in fact, there have been two studies that show that like eating a ketogenic diet can actually prevent cachexia. And there was one that is it's in animals, it's not that as solid, but it shows that it reverses cachexia. So I'm very keen to see more research like this. But yeah, it, it plus you're going to gain back the weight from fasting if you eat a healthy diet afterwards. Yes, yes, such a good point. And if you wouldn't mind just touching on the ketogenic diet, because I know, you know, there's so many misconceptions about it, like that, you know, you could just eat whatever, anything you want, bacon and, you know, just fatty, fatty foods. But you're still looking at unprocessed, healthy foods. Therapeutic ketogenic diet is just one where your body has more fat to use than sugar. I was completely plant-based my first year of healing. I did have some pasture-raised organic eggs on the weekends and some fatty wild-caught fish on the weekends, but otherwise it was only vegetables and fat. And this may not be the right way to go for everybody. I think genetic testing is really important with 
someplace I know Nutrigenome is what I use to get my nutritional genome tested. And it'll tell you if you need a little bit more of certain types of protein. I happen to be great with really low protein. And also Dr. Walter Lango really, he has a clinic now to treat cancer and he suggests a low protein diet. Um, so it can be different for everybody, but it's not about eating all the bacon you want. It really is whole foods, no seed oils, nothing that's going to raise your blood uh, sugar or increase your inflammation. So I really, I know when I talk about keto, people think about that bacon and cheese diet. <laughs> exactly. So different. I call it therapeutic nutritional keto. It's functional keto because you're eating foods that are going to heal your body that are helpful. It's just getting that processed food, the sugars out of your diet, and then replacing them with good, healthy fats instead of your factory made, you know, seed oils, things like that, trans fats, all of it. So terrible. Yes. And, and, you know, it just leads me to sugar and cancer because I hear registered dietitians that work with cancer survivors say that sugar does not feed cancer. And I just wanted to hear what your thoughts about that are. I mean, I see it all over Instagram. I actually stopped following some of them. It's amazing. Okay. Haley, what was the number one diagnostic tool that your doctor used for your cancer? Right. The radioactive sugar, right? For the PET scan. Yes. So a PET scan Exactly like you described, it is taking a sugar molecule, FDG, part of glucose, I can't pronounce it because of my aphasia, and they attach a radioactive tracer to it. And because of this thing called the Warburg effect that was developed by Nobel Prize winner Otto Warburg, who is all about episode one of the series, we know that tumors crave sugar, and then that radioactive sugar molecule is going to go straight to your tumors and then we image it and that is a PET CT. Um, it occurs, this Warburg effect, in almost every tumor out there, definitely most pronounced in late stage cancers and there it's about 70 to 90 percent of late stage cancers have this Warburg effect. And what where else in cancer do you have where every type of cancer demonstrates the exact same behavior? Almost nowhere. They are consistent in their use of sugar and glutamine, which we could also talk about. But sugar is the easiest one just to take out of your diet. And you're not going to run out of sugar. Your body makes its own sugar, but definitely not in the amounts that you are feeding it if you're eating the standard American diet. Yeah, that just breaks my heart. And you go into a chemotherapy room and they're giving you like Ensure and orange juice and all these things that are just sugar that are going straight to your tumor and feeding it. And so during my year of healing, I focused so hard on, I want to make my healthy cells stronger and my cancer cells weaker. <laughs> and that meant no sugar, not even natural sources like fruit juice. Yeah, I would be very careful about the vegetables that I ate, non-starchy, things like that. And uh, thank God it worked for me. Yes. Yes. It's so amazing. Your story is incredible. And, you know, now I just want to talk a little bit about the documentary and what led you to start this amazing documentary. Thank you. I was you know, I started a blog when I was first diagnosed to keep my family and friends updated just on my journey. And then slowly more and more people started visiting it. I was posting in research that I discovered on the metabolic theory, on these metabolic therapies. 
and my experience trying each of them, my little N equals one, I took a ton of blood tests and I mean, I'm very data driven. <laughs> so it was a lot of data. And I started to getting emails. I started the social presence and I started to get just overwhelmed. Actually went and I trained as a nutritionist, not to the extent that you have Haley, but just my own little bit to have some credibility to be able to help coach people. And I was super overwhelmed then. And I realized I can't help these people one-on-one. It takes too much out of me and my healing. I'm not suited for it. But my husband, Brad, (laughs) was a filmmaker you may know him as said by such horrible works as Jersey Shore and things like that. Really? <laughs> yes. He was able, he had the idea that, man, if you really want to get this information out to people, we need to make a really great film. And thank God for him. He has the skills. Uh, when you see it, it is so high quality that it will get us the credibility that we need. I'm super stoked about it. <laughs> and so we we went out actually at the very end of 2020. We ended up moving back to the U.S. after I had my first seizure. And I started reaching out to some of these scientists and physicians who had helped me so much in their research. People like Thomas Seyfried, Walter Longo, Jason Fung, Adrian Chuck, Angela Posh, so many. And they so kindly agreed to let us come out and film them talking about their research. So my husband and I loaded up the car. It was January, 2021, took off from Seattle across to Boston, down to Florida and all the way back, then went down to hit LA and Arizona. And the footage is just incredible. And we realized we couldn't just make a single documentary film. It had to be a series. And so right now it is well, it's going to be a five episode series. Now it's looking like four episodes and we're starting season two already. <laughs> but the research just keeps growing and changing. And so we're not really trying to tell people how to treat their cancer, but it's about this is why this theory is worthy of deeper research and why these therapies work regardless of what theory you subscribe to. And then from there, we're holding summits like this first summit in September that's concurrent with the world premiere of the series, which Haley, I hope you will be at, be a panelist for. Absolutely. I want to join. Yes. Yay. <laughs> and those are more about uh, showing the, the how with the latest research of the treatments and things like that. So you've got the why of the series and the how of the summits. So amazing. and. You know, if can you just give me maybe a couple examples, like a couple survivor stories of people that did this metabolic approach, metabolic theory, and how it worked for them? We really wanted to focus on the science and the scientists and not these sad stories of cancer because everyone knows cancer sucks. But we had to show what you say, these incredible stories of healing. So we started out with the case studies, the ones that have been published in very reputable journals. People like Sarona Ramaka, who was a stage four, she got a diagnosis of thymoma cancer when she was pregnant. She chose not to pursue palliative chemo because it wouldn't cure her. There was no cure. But she did discover fasting through her one of her doctors who was speaking at the summit. And about a year later, she reduced her tumor burden by something, I think it's 92%. uh, And she continues to heal. And this is with no conventional treatments. And similarly, we have people like 
Pablo Kelly, who you may have, you know, anybody watching this may have watched online, he had glioblastoma multiform, a very deadly brain cancer that has about a year survival rate. He chose to decline standard of care. He went for a keto diet. He's now carnivore. And eight years later, he was able to reduce his tumor burden in his head such that it was operable, which it wasn't before. And so with these two published studies, we started reaching out and we have found so many. Um, A lot of them, the interviews that we're collecting are being published on our YouTube channels right now, being cut together for the final episode of the series. Our goal is to have 100, I think we have about a third of that right now. Reach out if you have an incredible story. And again, it's not about just you know, surviving an unsurvivable cancer, although that's been a huge thing to hear about. It's about increasing the effectiveness of the conventional treatments that you're doing, having fewer side effects from those conventional treatments and living an overall better quality of life with cancer. Because that's one thing I do believe is that everybody has cancer. We know that. My husband, my dog, they've never been diagnosed. They never had enough to come up and be shown. I don't have enough to show up and scan right now, but I still have cancer. It's out there for everybody. And we have to constantly, continually manage our lifestyle and make sure it doesn't get out of control like it used to. Uh, And I've been talking so much, I forgot where I'm going with this, but it really means that this series (laughs) relates to everybody. Exactly. I mean, it's so important. Like you said, I mean, avoiding recurrence and, and avoiding cancer in the first place. I mean, that's the key, you know, if people can listen before they ever get a diagnosis, that's huge. And you said it. I know that Dr. Nisha Winters is a friend of both of us. And I read her book about halfway through my cancer period. And it really changed my life when she mentions that cancer is a messenger. It's a message from our body telling us what we need. And I'm just so grateful to my cancer for telling me how badly I was treating it, how desperate it was that it was just going to die if I wasn't going to do something about it. So I could do something about it and live this incredible life now. Uh, It's so great. And I'm so happy for you. And what an inspiration. And just before we go to random round, I just wanted to ask you one last thing. Any last advice for someone going through cancer and then also, you know, someone who is finished with treatment and and wants to remain healthy? I think people who follow you understand that the most important thing is to be your own advocate. Nobody knows your health like you do. Some test result, some person in a lab coat they're not you. They can't feel and experience what you're doing. When I had these doctors telling me I had a fifth brain tumor and I knew I didn't, I was like, based on what? On on how you know what brain tumors feel like? <laughs> I know. <laughs> and, and it took a lot of courage to be able to go with, you know, not have the extra radio th- surgery, which now we know would have killed me and trust myself. And I didn't have that at the beginning. There's so much urgency that just get it out now. So to somebody who's just been diagnosed, as easy as it is for me to say where I am in my in life, just try not to let that urgency get to you and consider listening to your body, seeing how you feel and what's right for you. Beautiful. Oh, and some somebody who's done, somebody like me, 
same thing, really. Just get rid of that urgency. I actually did have a tiny little recurrence. I talk about it on my blog where I could see one of those tumors come back. I went and I got my blood tumor markers tested and they were elevated. I went to my oncologist then and we had a new CT scan and they could see something. I can't confirm it was actually the cancer coming back because it disappeared before I could have a biopsy. And honestly, I probably wouldn't have had a biopsy, but I just fasted for six days, got a little tighter in my self-care and that's it. I didn't panic. And I know it'll happen again. It's just the nature of cancer and it's just, it's a part of me. Yeah. And, and it's such a big thing to to keep working on it because, you know, sometimes people think, oh, I, I did all this. I went through treatment. I'm you know, NED now, and they kind of go back to living their normal life, but it, it's constant Oh my gosh! work and, and it's not work in a bad way. Right. I mean, you feel better. You're so right. I forget about that. Like thinking that you're cured because you don't have detectable cancer. That's not a thing. It sucks. If you loved your old life, it really sucks. That old life died. You really have to pay attention to your continuing healing. Such a great way to end. And are you ready for random round? Yes, I think I am. <laughs> oh, it's fun. Fill in the blank. Freedom to you is? State of mind. It's not about the external circumstances. It's how I choose to feel about them. The last show you binged and loved? Because of my brain issues, I can't watch anything with drama or anything. So I watch Queer Eye. Nothing but Queer Eye makes oh, me feel good. That's a that's fun though. <laughs> when you're feeling afraid, what do you do? I meditate. I focus on fear. I accept it. I feel it. If you could have a one hour discussion with someone past or present, who would it be and why? My husband is my favorite person to talk to. So I would just spend another hour chatting his ear off. Probably. I love that. What is your favorite go-to snack? Well, you listen to this podcast, you know, I don't snack much. <laughs> so probably if I I'm, was just thinking that <laughs> if I'm being naughty, I eat way too many nuts. <laughs> What's one simple thing that brings you joy? It's everything makes me joy. Uh, the weather, nature. <laughs> what is on your nightstand? So many pills and supplements. So many. <laughs> what is your favorite form of exercise? Of walking or hiking in nature. What's one thing you're really grateful for in your life right now? It's everything. I'm, I'm very grateful to be talking to you right now, Hilly. Oh, I love it. I feel the same. <laughs> and last, where can people find you if they want to learn more? Uh, yes. Cancer Revolutions, but with one R, like Cancer Evolution, dot film is a clearinghouse for everything. Cancerevolution.events is where you can find out about the upcoming world premiere and the summit. You can also find us on YouTube at Cancer Revolution Doc. Same handle for Instagram and Facebook, but Twitter, which I've been super bad about, is Twitter or Cancer Evolves. Perfect. Maggie, thank you so, so much. It was just such a wonderful conversation. And I just loved, loved talking to you. And I know the audience is going to get so much out of it. Oh my gosh, thank you so much and for everything that you do. It's incredible. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, 
please rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so will really help this podcast get noticed and will help us to inspire more people. And remember, the sky is the limit when you take your power back when it comes to your health.